0: Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org.
1: Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. Today, I'm going to be talking with lawmakers about the recent legislative session and new laws that'll take effect in July and beyond. And uh, we have three guests with us. Two are joining us by Zoom, one in the studio. And joining us by Zoom, senator rod bray the senate president pro tem and state senator for district 37 which is in morgan which is based in morgan county senator shelley yoder um, assistant minority caucus chair and state senator for district 40 which is based here in bloomington and Representative Matt Pierce, assistant Democratic floor leader and House of Representatives member for District 61, which also is centered here in Bloomington. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to news at or you can send them to on Twitter to At Noon Edition. You can also join us on the air, 812-855-0811, or toll-free at 877-285 nine three four eight so thank you all for being here welcome back i know we've had all of you before um senator bray i want to start with you and just ask uh from your perspective as uh, the leader of the senate um how was this session what will it be known for what was what were the top one or two things takeaways that we should uh think about from this session
2: yeah well thank you first happy to be on with everybody and A very busy and productive session, I think. First and foremost, it was a budget year, which we do every other year, and uh, about $44 billion, but it's certainly um, uh, uh, a a balanced budget that spends within Indiana's means, and that always would be the top uh, priority. Outside of that, we really tried to tackle a couple of things that uh, were needed here in the state of Indiana. Senate Bill 1 was about mental health and trying to build out and make more robust the services that surround the 988 uh, 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 mental health line and uh, we're pretty proud of the work we're able to do there and the funding that uh, went along with that as well in addition to senate bill 4 which pertains to a lot of public health it's no secret in indiana that some of our public health metrics are not where we want them to be and uh, so we tried to restructure Um, that system, and I think we did so pretty effectively, and again, also put some more money behind that. So those would be two of the things I talk most about. And finally, also in the healthcare space, would be trying to work on the cost of healthcare across the state of Indiana. That probably took the lion's share of our uh, work on the Senate side.
1: All right, Um, Senator Yoder, um, your perspective from being in the minority party in the Senate.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Thank you also for having us on. It's good to have these opportunities to look back because I I'm always uh, one that just looks ahead, looks ahead, looks ahead, and it's good to take these moments to sort of look back and see you know what happened, what can we learn from. And a couple of positives that um, Senator Braid didn't touch on. and one was uh, in the s- sort of space of public policy. Um, You know, we did actually pass legislation that created a standing order for overdose intervention drugs Um, as somebody who's personally been impacted by this, and so many families across Indiana have lost a loved one um, from an overdose, and uh, uh, a standing order for these drugs um, goes into effect, and that's great. Um, We also expanded access to birth control, uh, being able to plan your families and um, have uh empowerment over birth control issues. We were able to get that uh, finished this session. And those are a couple of um, really great wins. And Senator Ray talked, uh, spoke on uh, the expansion of public health. Um, really wanted to see more dollars go there, but we were able to uh, address issues of public health with as before, as well as uh, paying attention to the mental health crisis that we have in Indiana uh, and uh, addressing that with Senate Bill 1. So those were four of uh, four areas. And I just want to touch on what we were able to do with expanding the 21st Century uh, Scholars mm-hmm. Program, really a step forward for, for Indiana.
1: We'll revisit some of those issues here in a second. But first I want to ask Matt Pierce, uh, a Democratic representative in the House. So what were the high points for you?
4: Well, I think that, um, as has been mentioned, we, we did make some advancements in mental health and public health. I think from the House Democratic Caucus's perspective, we wish we could have gotten a little more funding closer to what the governor had originally been asking for in public health. And and mental health, obviously, is uh, it takes a lot of resources, particularly for House Bill 1006, which creates new pathways to divert people out of the criminal justice system and actually into mental health and substance abuse treatment. And, uh, you know, that takes a lot of money and a lot of facilities, and so I think we could have done a little bit more in resources there. But the fact that we addressed those issues and and advanced them, I think, is good. One positive thing, which I think kind of got lost in the shuffle, is, you know, in 1986, my predecessor, Mark Cruzan ran for the legislature for the first time. And I was a campaign volunteer while, and I think I was in law school at that point. And uh, I remember us sitting around and saying like, okay, what issues should we campaign on? What are the big issues? And one of the things came up is like, why do we make parents pay for the textbooks that are an integral part of education? Why isn't that just part of, you know the state funding or back then it was more property taxes. But at any rate, the legislature, to its credit, you know, finally uh, fully funded the textbooks instead of making parents pay for that. And I think that's a huge thing. Thankfully, the governor kind of got that on the agenda and got it done. So I think that's, um, you know, a positive thing that's pretty monumental, it just kind of got lost and all the other things going on. And then finally, just, you know, kind of on the more negative side from the House perspective, I think, I feel like we've reached a little bit of a tipping point there where we've got a core of members who are very focused on social issues. Some people call them cultural war issues. And uh, and kind of an odd alliance is developed where you have a core of people who aren't a majority who want to advance things like the ban on funding for the Kinsey Institute, which ended up in the budget bill. You got another set of people who maybe don't support them on the substance, but they feel that it's too dangerous, you know, not to vote with them in order to avoid getting a primary challenge. And so you have this kind of critical mass where you've got people fearful of primaries, feel they have to vote with the kind of the social warriors. So we're starting to see more of those issues now not only get proposed, but begin to, to get passed into law.
1: All right, we've got several, several of these topics I wanna to revisit, and then I've got a bunch of others that we can talk about. But one of the first things I wanna go back to is the um, mental health and public health funding, because we did a story on uh, after Public Health Day at the legislature this year, which seemed like seems like a, a pretty bipartisan issue. A lot of people really got together and said, yeah, here's some issues that we need to solve. I know, Senator Bray, that you talked about how uh, the funding for it, I mean, both, both um, Representative Pearson and Senator Yoder have said, well, maybe we could have had a little more money. I think you said, I read in one story, uh, that this is a beginning, that, that it's not as, as far as you hope that we can go. Can you comment on that? Senator bray
2: yeah thank you, uh, yeah, and, you uh, no it's a it's a it's a challenging really large issue especially now and it's probably always been a large issue maybe it's more uh, we are, are more aware of it as a result of the experience with the pandemic but uh, so the what we did with with Senate bill one was added a hundred million dollars but there are other at least two other Big initiatives that happen. Ten million dollars towards the regional mental health facility grants so that will help people that are in our local prisons now get out of those and uh, into a facility that can actually help them. Because our you know our, our jails are full of people that have some mental health or addiction health issues, and our jails are just simply not the best place to uh, to to have them. And I'm not being critical at all of our local jails. It's not their not really their their job. So that's that's. Looking forward to that. Another sixty million dollars for juvenile uh, mental health issues and the juvenile justice system. So, all told, about a hundred and seventy million dollars. That's not a small amount of money. But you're right. You, you could. Uh, there was some argument, and the governor I think wanted to have a little bit more. But this is a, a, a significant step in that direction. And the one of the arguments that uh, that I've been kind of persuaded by is that. You put you, you, you put an influx of this money in there, and it's challenging for the infrastructure that we have right now to go ahead and spend that effectively. So we'll, in my vision at least, we'll continue to uh, invest in this and try and build it up and make sure that all the while that we're going, that the dollars are going to places that it needs to go to so that it helps more Hoosiers.
1: Um Senator Yoder, one of the one of the things that you mentioned uh, right off the bat and you can respond to anything that uh, anybody else says anyway, but I wanted to bring up the 21st century scholars uh, program. Y- you mentioned it as as one of the successes. Can you just explain more about what the General Assembly did with that this year?
3: Absolutely. Um, you know, the 21st century scholar program is uh, it's it's a program that really tries to catch um, young people uh, who qualify um, if they it's a sort of a tie to financial aid to um, get them into this program and ultimately have higher education expenses covered um, and the 21st century century scholars program this year it just provided that um, instead of students having to enroll in the eighth grade it automatically enrolls them Um, and because too often what we were seeing is uh, you know in in the eighth grade I remember you get so much paperwork and you're trying to go through it you have no idea the significance of this program in the long-term impact it's going to have on your family and you have to enroll by a certain date in order to qualify and so what we were able to achieve this year is, is sort of turning that around um, making sure that students who do qualified are enrolled and I hope that that sort of explains that maybe yeah. um there are follow-up questions you can ask those questions too but we want students you know indiana lags behind with students um, going on to higher education and uh, whether that's going to be a four-year school or two-year programs or technical training we want to encourage that in indiana because it makes indiana stronger and expanding the 21st century scholars program is definitely a step forward
1: okay um, on the topic of education, I know that there was, I believe, record funding for public education, but yet there there has been some some concern, I guess, about where that money is going and how the voucher program has been expanded. And I'm, I'm going to let any of you talk about that, but I'm going to point to Matt first since he's sitting here in front of me. Um, the education funding issue, how do you see that?
4: Yeah, I think this is one issue where there's a very stark difference between the parties on how they see going forward. So, there, you know, the Republican majorities have really for the last decade have been advancing, advancing these vouchers, basically taking what normally would be money going to the public schools and instead allowing it to be funneled through to the um, private and religious schools. So, uh, you know, this session, they pretty much all the limits and guardrails came off. So we started out with a you know, a very small incremental program saying, okay, if you're a student who's in a struggling public school, it's not meeting your needs, we're going to give you the same option that a wealthier family might have to go someplace that better meets your needs. And that's kind of all out the window now. It's pretty much just okay from the very start, you just decide where you want to go and we'll give you um, money for that. And I think we're up to about a billion dollars and it can reach up to families of four, I think around two hundred thirty thousand dollars. And you know, the argument from the perspective of the Democrats is that if you have a wealthy family that's already sending their child to a public school, and they can afford that, and now we're going to subsidize them or basically take over that cost for them through this funding formula, that doesn't improve education one bit, because they were already paying for their kids to go to that school, and that, that was working. So there's no value added for that. So that billion dollars, if we'd gotten that in traditional public schools, we think you could have really done a much better job on funding and making sure our kids in those schools have the programs they really need. Okay. Senator Brabe? What's the Republican perspective on that?
2: So, uh, first and foremost, uh, funding public schools has been a priority for us for um, uh, certainly a long time. But in, in the three years, in the last excuse me, in the last three budgets, we've funded them at historic levels each year. Uh, Two thousand and nineteen, we added seven hundred and sixty-three million dollars, new dollars, uh, uh, to public K through twelve education. Uh, in twenty-one, the last budget. Uh, 1.1 billion dollars in this in this budget in 23 it was a 1.5 billion. So I don't think anyone can say that we haven't been robustly funding our public schools over the last uh, certainly over the last um, uh, three budgets, which is uh, six years. And we'll continue to try and do that because it is uh, it's a, extremely important it's the most important thing the state does. It's almost 50 percent of our 44 billion dollar budget and, and it should be. Uh, With regard to the, uh, but the the philosophy that where we're at right now with funding is not funding schools. We're not going to fund a school, a school system, or a school building. We're going to fund students, and uh, each parent has the ability to decide where their student is uh, best suited to go. That's most of the time. It's a public school. Uh, About 89, 90 percent of the time, it's a public school. Sometimes it's a charter school which is a non-traditional but it's a public school and sometimes it goes in the form of vouchers but uh so where those children go the uh, uh those dollars will go and um it's uh, to the tune now of about i can't remember exactly what it is but eighty two eighty three hundred $8, dollars on average that that follows a student and we're going to continue uh, we're going to continue to try and do it that way
1: senator yoder do you have any uh, any reaction to you know this issue and you know where do you where do you fall
3: well i just would add that uh, the new the the additional funding in this uh new budget 70 72 percent of that new funding is going to go towards the voucher expansion uh, and then that's for year 2024 uh, the voucher program will expand an additional 14 percent in year 2025 Compare that to the expand of how that's going to fund um, for traditional public school. So traditional public schools, uh, on average, will see an increase of five point four percent in twenty twenty four, and only an average of one point three percent in twenty twenty five. That doesn't even keep up with inflation, and it does not reflect that the majority of Hoosier children attend traditional public schools, but the way that we are allocating new funding for education, the the breakdown does not reflect the way students are being educated. So if we are saying the money is going to follow the students, uh, the way we're funding our new dollars, it doesn't really reflect that. And I would just add that uh, the way that we are expanding pretty much to universal vouchers, the, the the individuals who will have the majority of that power. If we're saying that uh, we're going to empower, you know, this money funds students. Uh, really, it's going to the power is going to sort of lie in the hands of uh, the the folks in public uh, in excuse me, private education who get to decide who they want in their classroom. Because if we have universal vouchers, then they can really be very hand selective and who they want to have. Uh, sitting in their seats in the classroom. So I I think we need to uh, push the brakes on this and uh, really reevaluate how we're going to uh, educate children in Indiana and if we are really going to say that we're going to um, empower families and follow uh, students with the funding, we know that our biggest return on investment is through traditional public schools and funding those children. If the majority of students in Indiana are getting their education from traditional public education programs, we should fund those accordingly.
2: do. let me just push back a little sure. bit. I don't I think that the 72% number is, I don't know if it's wrong, but it's, it's certainly misleading. And I'll I'll say it this way, that there are 89% of our students across the state of Indiana, which is over a million students that uh, uh, attend traditional public schools, 89%, they get 90% of the uh, education dollars. So uh, to try and make a, a point that all the money is going to, uh, to private schools or to vouchers simply is not the case. And to the extent that money is going to a private school is because a parent of, uh, uh, regardless of their financial wherewithal, um, to accept ex- that those are making about over $220,000 for a family of four, they don't have the ability to access this. But otherwise, anybody has the ability to choose the school that's right for them and take that money and go. And that uh, seems to be uh, the fairest way to go. And I think it's also supported strongly across the state of Indiana by parents.
3: But I I, I, I think what's important to remember is private schools, they do not, they cannot and do not accept every child. So while we say we empower parents, and put you know the the money's going to follow the student uh that in fact is not true because there is not the capacity to uh educate every child the private school still can decide whether or not they have the capacity to accept a child and whether or not they want to so traditional public schools they are not given that choice the um the mandates, the regulation, the requirements, the accountability, the transparency, all of that is heavily uh, applied to traditional public schools. And that same transparency and accountability does not get applied to private schools. So I think that's an important piece uh, that we should have in this discussion as well.
4: Matt. Yeah, I was just going to add that point is that I think one of the issues that we've not really considered carefully enough in the legislature is just what should be the transparency and accountability requirements for private and religious schools who are getting these tax dollars now, because as um, Senator Yoder just said, we've got a lot of um, regulations, requirements, and accountability um, aspects to traditional public schools, but but really not much of anything for um, private religious schools, and even charter schools have, you know, pretty limited um, oversight. So the question is, you know, should we, you know, require schools to get tax dollars not to discriminate? Should we have, you know, other kinds of requirements to make sure that they're um, providing a level of education that we think meets the standards that we should have? And, and we really haven't gotten into that yet, despite a lot of this money floating into those areas. Senator Brave, I'm going to give you the last word on this
2: well so with regard to uh, I think voucher schools or private schools do have the ability to accept um, uh, to uh, accept students based on um, oh, certain parameters the uh, the non-traditional uh, charter schools which are public schools but but not necessarily traditional schools they have to they have to accept people as they come and can't uh, discriminate uh, or, uh, Based on uh, based on any factors. In fact, if there are more more people, more students that want a seat in a in a charter school than uh, than there are seats available, then it's a lottery system. So it's just a random ability of, of student to to get in there if they can. So uh, there's a conversation about um, a little bit more accountability in the voucher schools. we can, we're happy to have that conversation to see if it's appropriate.
1: All right, I wanna give our contact information again. We're talking with uh, three legislators, uh, State Senator Roderick Bray, who's the Senate President Pro Tem, State Senator Shelley Yoder, who's Assistant Minority Caucus Chair, and Representative Matt Pierce, the Assistant Democratic Floor Leader in the House of Representatives. If you have questions or comments, please give us a call 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send us your questions to news at org, And you can follow us on Twitter and send your question or comment. You can tweet it to at noon edition. Before we leave the area of education, I want to ask about preschools. What happened with any kind of preschool education this year. That's an area that seems to come up in the legislature year after year. Uh, I think there's a lot of evidence that strong support for preschools, public preschools, um, pays off in the long run. Was anything done in this area this year? Bray?
2: Yeah, one thing I can tell you we did with regard to preschools is uh, increased um, uh, funding by about, I think it's five and a half million dollars but the other thing that perhaps more more significantly is because we haven't been able to fill the seats that are out there right now and so we we uh we changed the income eligibility so more people would be qualified so income from 127 percent of the uh i think it's the poverty level or maybe the free and reduced lunch level i can't remember at this moment but from 127% of that level to 150%. So more families would qualify so we could fill the seats that are out that are that have gone
1: unfilled so far. All right, Senator Yoder, is that enough?
3: Yes, um, we had a pilot program uh, that we just expanded and, I would just say thank you for bringing this up because the more we can do in the area in the space of preschool education uh, is so very important for the long-term success of the state of Indiana because we know that for every dollar invested, I think uh, studies show we get thirteen back. It's it's just an unspeakable um, investment that we that that we are that we can make that we could choose to make and because our young people, um, the differences in students who start school um, that attended pre-K, they are just head and shoulders ready to go. And it, and it's a lot, you know, we're, we're holding students back. So we need to move toward universal pre-K um, and our current on my way. It's just, it's not enough to help families. So we need to continue just to work in the state of Indiana
4: to universal pre-K. All right. Yeah. You know, one of the complaints I've heard over the years about these empty seats from people trying to administer the program is they um, feel that there's so much bureaucracy because uh, I th- I think the state decided to take some federal money to plus that up, but with that came some strings. They so have income, work requirements, different things, and, and a lot of the families had a hard time, you know, producing the paperwork required to show that they qualify. Now, I, I think there might have been some – Things done to try to address that, but I'm not certain if we've really solved it, because that is what you hear when we say, we really need to expand this program to make it universal. We hear, well, we're not even filling the seats we have now, so why would we need to do that? And the question is, why aren't those seats getting filled? Is it because we have so much bureaucracy in the way, or there's not the need there, or people just aren't aware of the programs? And so I think we need to drill down on that. I
3: and I, can I just, yeah, I sure. just want to add one more thing, that, and that is, um When we look at the dollars that uh, we spent on uh, the voucher expansion, uh, we only expanded, we had a 400% expansion for vouchers, uh, but we only expanded for eligibility for vouchers. You know, we went to, I think it was about $230,000 a year for a family of four, but we only expanded our On on My Way pre-K program to 150% eligibility. And so, you know, I think that if we're really serious about um, making the best investment um, in taxpayer dollars, I think we know it would be moving towards universal pre-K. All
1: right, I I want to ask Matt Pierce first because you're from the House and a lot of budget bill, the budget bill originates in the House, correct? Mm -hmm. And I want to ask about, um, something related to the budget bill, and that's, you know, our tax system and tax cuts. What happened in the area of, of taxation this year?
4: Well, there there was a bill that, I, maybe it was in the budget, but uh, the income tax rate is supposed to go down to 2.9 here in a couple years, and they took away, the, there was already legislation to step that down, but it had some kind of requirements that were, if we hit a recession or the revenues, kind of turned down, they would pause that. And now they've taken that away so that um, the income taxes will be reduced um, to 2.9%. And then there's a committee that's going to look at a lot of different things. A lot of people have some really grandiose ideas, which would be great if you could find a way to do it, but I'm skeptical. But some people say, hey, let's not have any property tax on homesteads at all. So people's homes, let's see how we would do that let's just eliminate the income tax, like some other states have no income tax. And so there's a committee to kind of take a look at that. And And I don't object to um, looking at it, that kind of thing. In fact, probably 15 years ago, when Peggy Welch was a representative, we tried to get the legislature to hire someone like Battelle, a really high powered outside analytical firm, to come in and just look at the tax system from top to bottom, because at that time, there's a lot of talk about how we had moved from uh, kind of a consumption economy more to a service economy. We don't tax services. We tax things when people buy them. And so the question was, maybe there's a way to rework the tax system that provides the state with the revenue it needs to really meet the demands of the people for services, but at the same time, raises that money in the most efficient way and, and less burdensome way. So if we can get into that kind of discussion, I think that would be great. Senator Bray, I- your your
1: evaluation of uh, discussions about taxes this year are we are we due for a an overhaul of the tax system
2: well i think first of all we in indiana has a pretty competitive tax structure right now that is uh, widely looked at as one of the best in the nation and i'm extraordinarily happy about that um, uh, but it doesn't mean that we can't continue to look at it and try and make sure uh, try and make it better and this uh, is a two-year task force that came out of Senate Bill Three that we're that we are taking a look at to try and see is there a way we can do some adjustments on income tax and or property taxes. Property taxes obviously cause us a problem, in particular this year we've seen property taxes increase dramatically across the state, and folks who are retired have a have a nice house that is now increasing in value, which is a good thing. Suddenly maybe that property taxes begin to exceed what they can pay because they don't have income. And that's a serious problem that we don't wanna put uh, homeowners in as we go forward. Uh, so that's worth a look, uh, but to get rid of the homestead tax is about seven and a half billion dollars or so. So that's a, that's a pretty difficult nut to crack. If you get rid of the income tax, and as you've already said, there's several states across the country that have either they have never had income tax or have gotten rid of it. That's a that's a bigger that's a bigger one to try and tackle. Um, I, I said the it, homestead was maybe, I think it's maybe three and a half billion. I'm sorry, I think I misspoke. Income tax is closer to seven and a half to eight billion dollars. And then if you include the local income income tax that uh, that counties and local governments charge, that gets you almost up to eleven billion dollars. So it's gonna be really difficult to try and say we can get rid of that. But uh, um, we're going to take a look at it and maybe see if we can make some other changes or modifications as a result of our findings to, uh, to give some relief to Hoosiers across the state. The other thing I'll say just quickly is in my time in about 10 years in the General Assembly, I think we've decreased taxes of one type or another over 13 times. And every time we've done that, the revenue has increased.
1: How? How does that? How is that happening? Is it through the sales tax or or what?
2: Uh, how 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 does what happen? Again? How does the re- how
1: does the revenue increase if if taxes are decreasing?
2: Well, yeah, sales tax continues to be robust and goes up if you cut an income tax. Um, uh, you know, for instance, we have we have gained population in the state of Indiana, where everybody else, almost everybody else in the Midwest, has lost population, and that uh, I think has a positive impact on it. I. Uh, I don't know that I can tell you the specific in and out of exactly Mm -hmm. why that is, but it certainly has been the case.
4: Yeah, so this is another debate because obviously this kind of goes back to supply-side economics championed way back in the Reagan administration days and the Laffer curve and all that, and economists have great debates about This idea that if you lower taxes somehow that increases economic activity and the actual number of dollars is greater. There are people who believe that, and so theoretically, the lower you get your taxes, the more money will come in. I think it's difficult to um, analyze that, but you know, I know that the budget, this current budget, we're finishing up. You know, COVID. We all thought we would be just totally like scraping for every penny, but we had so much stimulus come out of the federal government and a lot of. Covid money came directly to the state, and then you had a lot of people spending, and so tax um, sales tax revenues increased. So that was a little bit of an anomaly for that two-year period. Now the economy has um, stayed pretty robust despite the attempts of the Federal Reserve to try to you know tamp things down to try to get inflation under control. So it's just it's difficult to um, uh, to decide whether or not this Laffer curve thing is for real, and you know we have to have all the economists come in and argue about that. Well, I just want to add that yeah, I think
3: what we really need to be asking um, if you know who does our tax structure benefit uh, I really appreciated stateaffairs.com. they pulled together um, some some numbers and for an individual making fifty thousand uh, dollars with some of the income tax cuts uh, that we made this year uh, an individual making fifty thousand dollars over the next seven years will see a savings of a whopping 275 dollars. And so it's hardly anything for um, for folks who are pretty much living paycheck to paycheck. You know, someone who's making $50,000, um, that's tough. I know for Monroe County, uh, that's not even a living wage. So, um, you know, these, when we talk about income tax uh, breaks and who it's benefiting, I think it's really important to think about um, those who are living paycheck to paycheck. And I just wanted to add uh, that I had a bill, you know, there are so many people who are working in the in the area of period poverty, and that is predominantly, I mean, that is a, a, a an issue for people who have, you know, born with uteruses and have this extra tax that they pay. You know, they're already having to buy, um, you know, menstrual products every 28 days for um, a huge chunk. Uh, almost 30 years in their lifetime. Uh, And then we're gonna tax that. That we're actually going to make money, revenue as a state off of period products. Um, Individuals can't go to school. They cannot go to work without these products and we're going to tax those products, I really hope that the state uh, will join you know, the, the majority of other states that have removed this tax from period products and uh, at least address the sales tax there, the revenue that we're making off of period products. But ultimately, we should be studying period poverty in the state of Indiana because we have students who cannot go to school due to a lack of access to period products. We have individuals who cannot go to their jobs. So if we're talking about You know, we're hearing every day these um, lack of workforce uh, throughout Indiana. There are things we can do, and some of it is, uh, you know, addressing how we can, you know, if we could have a discussion about period poverty in the state of Indiana, I think that would be good.
1: A couple of things i want to ask senator bray uh about the budget and about the way the budget works i mean w- one thing we've we've heard a lot about in the last few years indiana is sitting on a surplus right i mean there's a fairly substantial surplus what's what's the right number for the surplus that we have
2: uh, a lot of debate about that uh the the bottom line is we want to make sure that we have uh, ample reserves to uh to accommodate a downturn in the economy when we have uh, maybe a challenging opportunity or, or challenging time we thought that might be the case in the pandemic in fact the reserves we had we did use on uh, for a short period of time but uh, this the, the economy bounced back very quickly uh, you look back to 2008 before i was in the indiana general assembly and those reserves became extremely helpful there as well because sometimes you're just gonna uh, you know we pass a two-year budget uh with the idea that we uh Forecast. We don't know, but we forecast the amount of money revenue that will come in in that period of time. And obviously, when there's a downturn in the economy, the revenue that comes in uh, decreases. The sales tax, income tax, all of those things. And so you've got to be able to adjust to that. And, uh, you know, I look at it in a percentage. Is it 11? Is it 12? Is it 13%? Somewhere in that space is the is the is probably the right amount. It sounds like an awful lot of money. Yeah, because you're talking in terms of a couple of billion dollars, but it really only funds the state for a period of uh, you know 40, 40 days or so if if you had to rely on that exclusively. So that, uh, I think that uh, some experts will tell you that's around the, the area that we want to uh, be at. And uh, we're trying to be prudent with those dollars and make sure we have enough for a rainy day when it comes.
4: So my frustration with kind of the way the budget's gone in the past. Although two years ago, we had almost, I voted for that budget, passed almost unanimously because we had so much money in there. But the thing that's interesting to me is when our um, surpluses begin to build and the forecast is really good, you know, people on my side of the aisle say, okay, we can finally do things like, um, you know, universal preschool. We can finally fully fund mental health. We can do a lot of these things that have been waiting around for resources. And... What you find happens is the fiscal leaders kind of try to hide the money. Almost, it's like, hey, we've got this unfunded teacher liability thing over here, and even though we're on a steady path to you know retire that debt and meet those obligations, let's throw a billion dollars in there. Now, ended up getting reduced, to, I think, seven hundred million because they need another three hundred million to try to get over the top with the with their own Republicans on the school funding. But it seems to me that a lot of one-time projects. Get put in place to try to burn up the, you know, to buy down the surplus, and then that prevents us from addressing these ongoing um, issues that I think have been unfunded for a long time. So,
1: the other
2: question—I'll you know, well, oh, go ahead. Let me just jump in. So, I, I think there is a philosophical difference here. Uh, what we have tried to do, uh, uh, Representative Pierce is exactly right. When we, when we have, um, uh, when when the we take a look at first when there's a little bit of excess money, once we know we have enough reserves, is uh, let's take a look and let's try and pay down debt. We've significantly paid down debt over the last few years, and the only really uh, unfunded pension liability that we have right now, which is pension liability is something that brings down massive corporations as well as uh, municipal and state governments, if you look around the state, around the nation. Some folks are just completely crippled by that, and we continue to chip away at ours um, at a very rapid pace. In 2004, I think it was maybe 17 to 19 billion dollars of unfunded pension for public employees, and now it's down to uh, closer to six billion. We'll have it; we should have it paid off in a couple of years. And so, I'm never going to apologize for trying to pay down those obligations and do something that should have been done, frankly, years ago. The other thing we'll tr- we try to do. When money comes in, certainly we don't hide it. It's a it's a public budget process like it always is, but uh, we look at capital uh, infrastructure that is needed across the state of Indiana, and we pay that in cash as opposed to paying it uh, with bonds, where we have to pay interest. That's much much cheaper way to go about it, and uh, and we there is some effort to try to avoid growing government today when we might not have the revenue to continue to pay that tomorrow so we try to be as uh, as uh, prudent and fiscally responsible as we can
1: Senator Bray, about 3 weeks ago in this program we did a story about the uh, the debt ceiling debate in congress and you know it was so much di- the conversation was so much different from what we're having today because you know we had e- economists on uh, experts on the debt ceiling who were talking about how the you know the federal debt's gone from $10 trillion to $31 trillion in the deficit that we run. Can you just sort of explain to our listeners, you know, why what what are what's in the state process and the state budgeting process that keeps Indiana sort of on track without having these big deficits and big uh, and big government debt?
2: Yeah, a, a couple things, I think. Uh, first of all, just it's, it's a very different environment that we work in in Indianapolis, in the state capital than it is in Washington, DC. And I'm grateful for that, the people on both sides of the aisle. And um, uh, I guess the, uh, uh, and I've, I've watched, was my jaw drops as I watched our, our national debt increase. I thought it was bad when George W. Bush finished his term. And maybe it was $10 trillion. And through the Obama term, it doubled um, when it's taken, it took more than 225 years to get to 10 billion, or excuse me, 10 trillion. And then, since Obama's term, it has uh, uh, not gotten any better. It's re- not a Republican or Democrat issue. It's a it's a national and Washington D.C. issue. I'm afraid. Here, the <laughs> first thing I'll point to is our state constitution requires us to have a balanced budget. Uh, there still can be some, I suppose, uh, games you can play with that, but I think all sides, both sides of the aisle take it very very seriously and when we in fact I I, I, I look frequently to the process we have for determining what the revenue forecast will be. Uh, you look at, um, They I think they put together first a calculation of, uh, of, uh, of how to do that and then they input the numbers and the data, the economic data that are out there and then they stay true to that and uh, um, they've done a, Pretty pretty darn good job of coming close every time they've done it. Never never can get it exact, of course. You don't have that good of a crystal ball, but but they stay true to that. Uh, exercise and uh and we don't on either side of the aisle try to play games with it and it's worked very well and then once we know what that revenue forecast is we we take that very seriously and then we try and spend within our means and and uh over the last uh, many years it's it's worked pretty effectively and so we don't have any we don't have that debt at all and i'm again as i said at the start of this i'm grateful for that
4: yeah, I think some of the differences, you know, as, as mentioned, I think the biggest one is we have this kind of nonpartisan group who crunches the economic data and tells us how much money they predict we will have. And people accept that on both sides of the aisle. And so that's the number to work with. And, and the legislature is very focused in on this two-year period, which can be good and bad, and that maybe you're not as long-term in your thinking, but anyway, any rate, you're focused in on the, the balancing the books for the next two years, whereas in Congress, you have these bills, tax cut bills, that might go out in five or ten years, and the kind of games they play there is, if it's going to blow a big hole in the budget, like the Trump tax cuts, they just say, well, we'll say they're going to expire in five years or ten years or something, and then we can cut off the, you know, the forecast of the bigger impact, and so you have people fight a lot of time to congressional budget office will say this is how much money we think we have and this is how much we think the fiscal impact will be of this particular legislation and then you have the executive branch over in the Treasury and other places say no we got a different idea of what what we're going to have and what this is going to cost and so you can't even agree on the, the basic fundamentals to have the policy debate because you're too busy arguing about the numbers. Syndra
1: Yoder, I want to start with you on this question. Uh, there, there's been you know a lot written about on the federal level and the state level about the culture wars that, that uh, Representative Pierce mentioned earlier. You call it something else, but that's what I call it. <laughs> um, and I and I wondered how you know how well do we do in this session in avoiding those issues? What are what are were there bills that got through that you wish would have never seen the light of day?
3: No. Well, I think um, I'm going to sort of take a step back. And I'm not going to even call it culture wars. You, you were wondering what we should call it. I think yeah. it's just banning access to health care. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's similar whether we're banning access to abortion care or you're banning access to gender affirming care for children. Um, we are banning access to health care. And in Indiana, if you're banning health care, how can you say that we're actually providing it? And you might say, you know, how, how prevalent is this? Well, these are topics that you're not gonna go out and have a conversation with your neighbor. Um, you're not gonna be talking about these. These are private, private, personal issues that families and that individuals should be having with their primary provider and finding a way through so instead of calling it culture wars i'm going to just call what is we are banning health care and it was uh, we just saw more of that banning of access to health care in this last session mm-hmm. it was a continuation of what we saw last summer
4: matt pierce yeah, I think that my greatest concern is I think we have a core of people in the legislature now who really want to shape society to reflect their own values. And a lot of times those values are based on their religious upbringing. And I've said over and over again, those beliefs should be respected, but that we have a wider population, we have a diverse state, we have people with different religious viewpoints, different moral values. And so I think a lot of these um, kind of social issue bills are really like one set of people trying to either kind of turn the clock back or just, you know, force everyone to conform to their kind of religious or moral viewpoints. And we have a very diverse state, and I think that's um, questionable. And the, the the one thing that is interesting, too, is the – it seems like the um, – Legislature often is confused about what it's actually trying to do. So, in this transgender area, there's a lot of discussion about um, we need to preserve parents' rights. So, if a kid says, I want a different pronoun at school, like the parents got to know and the parents got to sign off on it, and there's big debate about that. And then at the end of the day, we pass a bill that says if we're not going to allow the parents to decide that. Um, you know, care for transgender kids, health care of some type that they might want to do. The government just said, no, you can't do it, which is another issue, which I think is interesting because I, I feel my Republican friends have lost their way. They used to be the small government, less regulation, kind of individual liberties people. And more and more, we're reaching into these very, you know, into the parental unit about what happens with their kids. And we're doing all kinds of things that, you know, there was a time when they said, no, that's not what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Sen- Senator Bray, I know that um,
1: there's some litigation going on. You don't want to talk about issues that are going to be litigated in this area of um, sort of cultural differences. Let's put it that way. One of the one, well, a couple things I want to say. One is, it seems like from an observer standpoint, a lot of things start in the House, and then they do seem to come out of the Senate in a much more a, a more moderate way. I just want to. Get that out there but secondly um, the the school library book issues i've read a lot about that i've heard a lot about that some of the things that i hear don't seem to be exactly accurate but i want to get your take on um, the legislation that passed about uh, parents having a right to basically keep certain books out of school libraries
2: so oh, yeah, thanks for the question. And uh, let me say, as a global perspective on these kinds of issues, they are contentious to be sure, and and they're the uh, they're the they're the bills that uh, that get most of the media attention because I think that's of interest to people. But you know, this last session we passed 252 bills. Um, of those 252 bills. Um, Uh, and this is the case really about every year, 56% of those were unanimous with everybody vote, every Republican and Democrat voting for them. 92% were bipartisan with some Republicans and some Democrats. So that leaves uh, about 20 bills or so that were along party lines. Some of those, not all of them, but some of those were some of these um, uh, socially contentious issues that you're speaking of. So Mm -hmm. keep that in perspective very very small percentage of the bills that we debate and that move and pass through the indiana senate um but the one you're talking about um uh then that one that one ended up being fairly controversial but uh, with regard to it it doesn't change the law on 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 books it simply says as the law is today that the books that are obscene or harmful to minors as defined by the united states supreme court certainly obscenity anyway Um, aren't aren't allowed in uh, in public schools and that's the case today that bill simply said um, it sets in place a procedure so that a parent if they are concerned about that bill um, excuse me about that book can bring it to the school board's attention and the elected school board has to uh, make a decision as to whether that is uh, classified as harmful to minors or obscene and um uh, there's a little bit more to that bill but that is by and large what it does and it doesn't change the law on what is harmful to minors or obscene it just gives a procedure for parents to have that looked at by the elected school board
1: we only have a minute and a half to go
4: so matt short huh? Well, I, I don't think we're in, we're not ending okay. yet so so, so uh, i would just say that the biggest problem is that um i agree at the end of the day the constitutionally requirements on first amendment definitions of indecency up and all that's going to you're not changing that because you can't. That's a constitutional thing. But I think we create a chilling effect, right? Because we're kind of telling the teachers like, hey, you might get hauled you know, by a prosecutor in the court saying you provided information that's harmful to minors. And um, so they're saying, I got to stay away from anything that's remotely controversial because I don't want to be in the middle of that. And you know, this is another situation where we have, in most cases, elected school boards. We have people who are accountable on the local level who can create the system for determining what is and isn't in the libraries and in the classrooms. And why does the state have to come in and start ordering people around saying you've got to create different procedures? Let let the local school boards decide how to deal with these issues. Senator Yoder. 15 seconds, I'm sorry.
3: All right, I would just say, you know, we have to keep saying books are not the problem. It's the lack of teachers, the lack of counselors. That's the problem. And this last session, we only passed legislation that only made that worse. So uh, I I think that um, looking at the past year, you know, we have taken away a teacher's ability to collective bargain um, and we need to come back next year and uh, continue fighting on behalf of Hoosiers and Hoosiers families to make their lives better.
1: We're out of time. I want to thank Senator Roderick Brace, Senator Shelley Yoder, Representative Matt Pierce, for Engineer Mike Pashkash, and Producer Nathan Moore. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening.
0: Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org.